Greetings, my nerds, and welcome to the Northwest Nerd Podcast, where we cover pop culture, science, and technology with a Pacific Northwest focus. My name is Nick Jarin. And I'm Dyer. 100% pure adrenaline. Oxley. <laughs> this is episode four of season three. We are fresh off of Jet City Comic Show where we met some fine people this past weekend. Shout out to shout out to the handful of people who did an impromptu podcasting panel with us. That was a ton of fun. Uh, we've got a jam-packed show today. We've got the news section where we'll talk about how I almost got fooled by a Twitter troll's propaganda, how this region could become the hub of the space economy of the decades to come, and what AMC just did to flip the bird at MoviePass. After that, Dyer will take us to Astoria, Oregon, where some of the Northwest's most memorable and beloved films were made. It's much, much more than just The Goonies, although that is my favorite of the bunch. Then we have an interview with the legendary cartoonist Keith Tucker. He was behind all kinds of animated icons like Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, the X-Men cartoon with the truly great theme song, uh, Gem and the Holograms, DuckTales. Honestly, too many to name. It was a really fun interview. Uh, Dyer got to talk to him over the summer when we were traveling around working on this here season that you're listening to right now. And the thing that people don't always get is that he's the storyboard artist, so he has the cartoon background, but... He's the cartoonist that tells the story. So, I don't know. It's a, it's a very hands-on role in these shows, which makes it just fingerprints are all over. He can tell some stories. All that goodness for this magazine episode of Northwest Nerd right after the news. Dyer, let's get into the news this week. And up first, we have a piece of, uh, well, I guess I'll call it quote unquote news, because as I saw this pop up on my Twitter feed this week, I thought, huh, that's strange. And immediately people are outraged about it. I wonder if this is even real. And of course, I'm talking about a story that I'm sure almost no one has heard about because it's not real. <laughs> um, uh, but it scroll- was retweeted by some local folks here too in Bellevue. Yeah, exactly. Some uh, some some writer folks who have significant followings who are going around spreading this nonsense. Uh, I'm not going to name any names. But uh, there was this tweet going around that included what looked like a screen cap of a news story with the headline, Amazon Studios confirms that their Middle Earth will include elves of color. Uh, and then there's some other details on there that make it look like it's a real article, yeah. perhaps from like The Verge or Vulture or something like that, just purely based on formatting here. Uh, and then the person who tweeted this out, who probably a troll, uh, said along with it, my entire childhood has been ruined by pandering at this point. Not going to lie. It hurts. I hope Tolkien's relatives suffer for selling the man's universe to a soulless multinational Weird to use that as a as a noun. To a soulless multinational for the rest of their lives. It's what they deserve. Spelled soulless wrong. Yeah. The magnum opus of a man that will possibly be canonized being ruined by our capitalistic hellhole. It boils my blood. That's, That's not a sentence. That's the stuff you can actually read because he also tweets other tweets on it and we're not going to read those yeah like Um, i'm hesitant to even mention this person's uh this is this is yeah this is between his tweets about birth control and porn so uh and this started getting people riled up like people immediately were like okay if this universe has elves but you can't handle 
people of color elves, then obviously there's something wrong with you. You are the problem. This thing was pretty much engineered to get the uh, the the Twitter backlash that it immediately started getting uh, earlier this week, as you're probably listening to this on a Thursday. And I almost fell for it. I saw this thing. I saw other people interacting with it as well. And I was like, well, this is upsetting. So I brought it to your attention. I was like, this could be good for discussion tonight. Uh, we're going to record. And then I started looking more deeply at it. I was like, I wonder where the article is to go along with this thing because it's just a screenshot. I can't Research. tell. Yeah, I can't tell what outlet it's from or anything like that, but it does have a byline for someone named Dan Arad, possibly Arad. Uh, so I was like, well, maybe I can find it just based on title and author. And wouldn't you know it, this thing does not exist anywhere that Google would be able to find it. I can't even find a writer named this. First of all, um, and this this isn't just my personal preference. If you see anything screenshotted and then put on the internet um, without a link or anything like that, that person's a jerk. But they're also probably putting out something that is not true. Because if you actually did have a source, they would probably just send the link out there and you can actually read about it. Mm-hmm. Nobody, I mean, I see people screenshot, which by the way, if you screenshot something and put it on social media, that's illegal. Don't do that. Um, but do you mean just in terms of copyright law, copyright law, you generally platforms own their content. So, and I've run into this a lot of time with uh, like content producers. Well, can you screenshot a social media post or that? And, and, and basically lawyers will just tell you, tell you don't do it because you always run the risk. But, mm-hmm. uh, if this was a news article that somebody owned, um, then that news article platform would own it. And then you screenshotted their content, which means you were taking an unlicensed photo of their stuff. Long story short, um, doesn't look very good on its face. And then you have to do a consider the source thing. Mm-hmm. The one thing I want to point out about this, though, is this is exactly what trolls do, is they find something that we're already eh about, right? We're already kind of itching at each other about. And I'm going to point to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer news, right? Because they were going to revamp Buffy. And then it got word out that, you know what, well, maybe we'll switch things up. Maybe the lead character is going to be African-American this time. You know, maybe we're going to do something else with it. And people did flip out about that. I don't know how serious or not serious the internet is the way it is. But then they, I feel like they took something like that and they said, look, this will really piss them off. And then they took this fandom and kind of overlaid that. Yeah. And that's exactly how a troll does. As they said, let's take this little bit of something we know that's there this, let's take this little spark and then we'll put like some gasoline on it mm-hmm. and see. And the whole end, end of the game is just to make you emotionally exhausted from just being pissed off, outraged. You're outraged. Other people are outraged. And that fire just spreads. And what almost got me about this one is that it comes so close to seeming like something real. Because we've seen this pattern so many times where person of color, actor of color cast in X movie, X role people immediately get upset that Michael B. Jordan is playing the human torch or I mean, pick any number of examples. This has gone on for so long. Why wouldn't you want Idris Elba? It's James Bond. Anything. Thank you. He's 2018 sexiest man alive. I know for for some reason, this is the second time you've told me this today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it's because he's been my sexiest man alive for a long time now. Ever since Stringer Bell. Um, some other news that I found interesting and my take for this is very simple. Russell Wilson's startup app trace me, uh, is going to shut down soon. And Can when you I saw this headline, what that even is, 
when I saw this headline in GeekWire, I was not at all surprised because at one point I had downloaded the Trace Me app, which is basically, it's like if Instagram only had Russell Wilson on it. Like it was, it was a Isn't celebrity focused Instagram? social media app that was, we have specific people on here giving you behind the scenes content that you won't see other places, even though he did repost a lot of it to his actual Instagram. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's just, it's really boring. It was really boring. Sierra was also on there, but it seemed to me like they couldn't get a celebrity roster on board with using this thing because people were already using other apps. So let, anyway. let me let me let me get this straight. So this is the type of app for a person that let's just say gets some uh, mid-century furniture and um, gets clothing that's been inspired by mid-century furniture and quality coffee while they're eating a loaf of bread shaped like a ball of some sort. <laughs> While going to a stadium that, as of yet, does not and never will exist, and then goes, Drinking oh, I wonder what kind water. of app I'm going to use. I'm going to, oh, I, I will use Trace Me. That's that's what I'll use while I eat my loaf of bread. AKA, isn't that just Instagram? Why would you? Yeah, it was Instagram, but not as good. Basically. Yeah, why would and I? No one was there. Why would you go to that? That's the problem. All these people make these social media platforms, but it's like, yeah, I have Facebook. Like that already exists. Yeah. One of the most annoying things uh, now that I work in tech is meeting people who want to build the Uber of fill in the blank. <laughs> and I'm like, it's never going to happen. So there's a there's a couple quick news stories. Let's get into our, our third one is a little bit meatier. Uh, Dyer, I yield the floor to you. I came across a report. A while ago, it was actually published out in September by the Puget Sound Regional Council. And if you don't know who they are, they're essentially all the governments, agencies, tribes, ports, any sort of public entity that's in the Puget Sound region. And they get together, they make reports, they try to figure out how can we best make this a thriving community around the uh, the shoreline. And the most recent report that they did was on the space economy. Um, this is not a report to say, like, look how great the future is going to be. This is more like what we have right now. What does the Puget Sound have right now in terms of the space economy? Which, first of all, I'm just going to mention, we need a new word. We need a new term for space economy. That sounds like like when they didn't know what kind of the space industry was going to be in the 40s and 50s. And they're like, yeah, we'll get some space bucks. And you know, I don't know. It just it doesn't sound real to me. <laughs> Just going to throw some stats out here for you. So what do we have here right now? Well, if we're going to make a space economy for the Puget Sound, I mean, what do we have right now to build off of? What we have right now in this state is huge, is a space business currently responsible for $1.8 billion of our economic activity. That includes 6,221 jobs throughout just the Puget Sound region. Um, that's payroll is up to about $610 million annually. That also funnels about $65 million into state and local taxes. That's an important figure, too, because when a bunch of governments get together, that's really the only thing that they're caring about. How do we get a good economy going, a.k.a. how do we get all those tax dollars? Uh, just, I don't know. I'm sure there's a pun here about money falling from heaven and, and just going into <laughs> from the, the stars. And from, from the, the stars. stars. We have money from the stars. Try to get some of that stardust. Blue Origin alone uh, employs 1,100 employees out there in Kent. And did you know this? SpaceX opened satellite offices here locally? 
Now, uh, SpaceX is the Elon Musk one, right? That is the Elon Musk one. They do Blue a lot Origin of things. Blue Origin is the Bezos one. Blue Origins is the Bezos. Okay. SpaceX is Musk. Uh, and SpaceX opened two satellite offices. Did you know, did you know that? I didn't know that I until did not I know read that. your report. Redmond in Seattle. And do you know what these satellite offices are for? Research? Satellites. <laughs> that almost makes too much sense. And broadband. Um, yeah, SpaceX is even coming here, which I think that was indicated. They, if you read this report, they have a, a cluster of businesses that are already up and operational here. Some of them are going out to do asteroid mining. Some of them are just suppliers or manufacturers. Um all involved in this industry, but now we have, I mean, I would say SpaceX is, a, is another one of those big headers. At least they make a lot of headlines, and they are already looking into, okay, now we need to plant something in Seattle. Uh, we're not launching anything from here. Mm-hmm. We're obviously, we don't have any, like, launch pads. They're doing that down in Texas. They're doing that down in Florida. But the business and the tech is here, and so there already is a business, um, a platform to to launch the industry, so to speak. Um, yeah, take that Houston. <laughs> we'll launch down there. We'll make all the noise down there, but we'll do all the business up here. And that business, according to Morgan Stanley, is going to be $1.1 trillion by 2040. I also, what? yeah, I found some other estimates too. They put that out in the next 30 years. It'll be $3 trillion. Um, I was already surprised that it was 1.8 billion right now. Yeah, well, I mean, imagine we already have Boeing here. I think that's that's the big one. So we have Boeing. Yeah, and that's, only a portion of what they do is is space related. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's an aeronautical company, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's mainly the idea. We have manufacturing, we have engineers, we have multiple um, centers of activity, and then we have the suppliers that supply them. Well, now if you want to make some kind of company that's going to go up uh space elevator yeah planetary resources for example that's going to go up and do uh asteroid, asteroid mining, mining. Jinx. Uh, jinx, <laughs> I to say. um i don't know about that space elevator thing that you mentioned though, i know before. i keep I saying it i was saying it a lot before the show people don't know that i, I don't i don't know how it. possible that it is it was a great episode of voyager but i'm not sure we'll ever I actually it was do like that balloon based i I'm now detracting because I've done none of the research on what I'm talking about, no, whereas you've done a lot I'm of research. I'm freaking out about it because I'm super excited about it. The, the, the point is with the whole Boeing thing is, so we've already developed this crop of industry here. Um, and Boeing is pretty big in and of itself. But now we're looking at an industry that just uses Boeing as a seed for a much larger industry. There is a problem, however. We have the talent. But if you've seen anything that's happened with the recent tech economy, which is also one of the things that this industry is going to feed off of, we need programmers, we need software engineers. The talent is coming from other areas for the most part. Uh, we're not developing it here ourselves. Some schools are on board. Some educational centers are actually on board and training, but not all of them. And we need to get that up to speed because otherwise we're pulling people from out of the area. For now, to get this started, we have the talent that's here. But what the... Uh, PSRC here, um, Puget Sound Regional Council, is very, very concerned about is, I'm going to say this very slowly because I love this term, <laughs> the silver tsunami. Do you know what the silver tsunami is? Um, a bunch of people 65 and up moving in? Yeah, moving out. It's when the baby oh, boom- moving out? It's when the baby boomers retire. You've done your job at Boeing and now it's time to retire and we don't have the talent here to replace you. Oh yeah, this is happening with airline pilots too, right? Yeah, right. This, I mean, this is this is not just to the industries here in the Puget Sound. It's not just to the aeronautical industries or the space economy, but it is a problem 
in general throughout our country, um, which for one, please retire. We need your jobs. Second of all, yeah, our generation needs yeah, the upward mobility. Would you please get out please. of the way? Um, second, <laughs> if we have a seed here like Boeing and a tech industry, but we don't have the talent here, we're going to have further problems of what we already have. It's going to be exacerbated. We will be pulling talent out from outside of our region and not pooling from the people that we already have here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you've seen what's happened in Portland, we've seen what's happened in Vancouver, BC, in Seattle, we have people from the outside coming in who have the talent, but we're not investing in the people already here. That's one of the concerns I'm pulling out of this report. I'm not sure that their council would actually say that is a concern. What they are saying is that we need to start investing in educational resources now that's going to foster this economy. Why am I going crazy? I just think it's totally cool. I mean, this is essentially that opening scene of Star Trek Enterprise where we yeah. start actually do this is this is what gives us Zephram Cochran and we eventually our region has the, the warp chance, drive. Uh, yeah, right? like our region has the chance to be the hub yeah. of the space economy and all of the basically the intellectual side of that entire thing. Right. And we should seize that. We need to seize that with summer camps that teach kids how to build rockets. Right. Anything from that all the way up to programs at the University of Washington collaborating with these companies. So you're that they should just have classes on programming and computers in public school. You should teach it right along mm -hmm. your uh, English classes and math classes. You should have a computer programming class. Teach that instead of cursive. Yeah, people still do that. You know when I went through that teach ghost log? Cursive. That ghost log? You know how many people wrote in cursive? I was flabbergasted. <laughs> Who still does that? I mean, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know who still does that. Right. Well, whoever goes last... to that hotel apparently does. I um, was going to. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of one living person in my life who still right? writes in cursive. I still have some of my grandma's old birthday cards, and that's yeah. that's the that's only I thought cursive of too. I have that's in my, my grandma, life. but she's right. So, point being, um, there is some room for celebration. Zephram Cochran will come from the Puget Sound region, in my mind. And uh, there is some room for concern, too. So if you are a decision maker, if you are a teacher in this region, you know what to do. All right, let's wrap up the news with uh, this story out of The Verge um, saying that AMC... I'll just read the headline here. Oh, you know what? This is the website that looked like that screenshot. It looks exactly like that screenshot from that other story. It that looks real. very, very similar. It was exactly this one. Same Different layout. font. Yeah, but they yeah, tried to make it look style. like The Verge wrote that. Yeah. Right, well, anyway, that's a very visual observation. You're welcome, podcast listeners. <laughs> that other thing that was visual looks like a thing that I'm looking right now. Uh, anyway, from The Verge, uh, AMC will raise the price of its MoviePass competitor next year, citing strong demand. So... AMC rolled out its MoviePass competitor, Stubbs A-List, a few months back, and they're saying that they already have half a million members just since June, and that one in 10 AMC moviegoers is already a Stubbs A-List member now. They're saying that this thing has done so well that not only are they going to raise the price because people will be willing to pay that, uh, but they're also going to expand it to more markets as well. In, in some of these markets, you're going to see a price increase of $4 per month, and they're saying that uh, a, a couple things are happening here. So part of the price jump is because um, there are certain super users on there, just like with MoviePass, where you get these people going to like three movies a week and obviously getting the ultimate bang for their buck out of this monthly subscription. Um, but then you have other people who are going to maybe 
one a month and it's def- they're, and they're definitely making money off of those people. So what I found interesting is that this is the complete opposite from the narrative that we always hear at a movie pass, which is that they're adding more restrictions on things to make mm-hmm. it such that people can't abuse their uh, their membership and go to too many movies and make it unprofitable for movie pass. And to see AMC come out and plant their flag like this and say, in your face movie pass, ours actually works and is profitable, I found really fascinating. Well, two things. One, AMC, I mean, it's almost a different ball field for them to even play on. Movie pass is an outsider coming in saying, hey, we're going to do this. AMC can just say, hey, we're going to do it because we own the ball field. What struck me about this, which is my second point, is AMC and other theaters, which I'm sure to follow, are essentially modeling themselves off of like a Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu type thing. You buy a membership Mm -hmm. and you go and get to see these new movies. Um, Like I was offered one of these. I went to an AMC. I go to one near where I live. They offered it to me and it actually sounded really appealing for the amount of times that I go to this theater. I thought I would go. Now, if I had that, I'm not going to Regal. In my mind, I'm going to AMC. Yep. So, I mean, it could be very smart. It's very much like when I'm at home, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to spend money on Netflix and not Hulu. I'm going to watch Netflix. You know, pretty smart. Movie Pass is probably having problems because they were this outsider trying to get in and the industry is going to say, well, no. The other huge advantage that AMC has is that they can lure people Maybe not the right word, but they can get people into the theaters and then sell them concessions, oh, yeah. which there is an amazing margin on. So, well, if you go to the one I go that to, money back, it's twenty one and older, and they're selling booze too for like ten dollars a cup, right? Uh, I How much think is a so. beer there? I haven't uh, been there in a while. A lot. I don't buy beer, okay. you know, well, but the whiskey is okay. decently priced. I can't um, believe they have whiskey there. Usually, it's like a oh, beer yeah. and wine situation. No, they have they have a full bar. I also have great pizza. Wow, I I'm have just not doing it. I'm while. just totally pitching and adding for like <laughs> yeah. AMC right now. AMC, but, get at us, man! That flatbread pizza, mmm, tasty. Oh. I could see the future of this. I would definitely buy into a membership to see a movie straight up, especially now when you have uh, studios like Netflix that are going to release video into theaters before it even goes on their own platform. Mm-hmm. So. I would do that, but then I wouldn't be going to Regal or any of the other, you know, theaters in town. Yeah, I'm not particularly loyal to any theater chain as it is. If but anything, I try be? to go to like local be? ones. Would I be if, if I had, had a membership? this pass? Would yes, you? absolutely. Yeah, Seattle had a bike share program, right? We had a couple bike share programs. We had Spin that actually came in first, but they're not the ones that survived. Mm. Lime Bike came in and kicked everybody's butt because they did better. What the people who actually started doing and movie pass came in and gave everybody a great idea. And I think people are going to make it an even better idea and are going to be the ones that actually succeed on it. Yeah. Sometimes the people who are first aren't best. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's move on because we got a bunch of shows still coming up. We got your feature on, am I supposed to reveal the town? I can reveal the town. It's in the title of the episode, your feature on Astoria, yeah. Oregon. And then, uh, after that, your interview with Keith Tucker and, uh, this feature in particular, I mean, there have been a lot of films produced here in the Northwest, but this particular corner of Oregon yeah. can boast being the home of like the most iconic movies that have been produced up here. You do a great job of running through them anyway, so I won't yeah. list them right here, even though I was about to. 
uh, I just got really excited once you started getting into the clips. I was like, oh yeah, oh oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and I didn't even I didn't even get to mention ones. all of them, but it is pretty fascinating. And what what's more fascinating is that it is an industry that keeps on going there. There's this stretch of beach. It's along the northern coast of Oregon. It's near Seaside. And it's quite popular with tourists, but that's not why I came here. See, when I look out onto the waves and cross this shoreline, I don't see what a lot of other folks do. Because most people don't realize that something important happened here. Something iconic. You go quietly! No! You know, there's no way I can handle a cage, man! I don't care! You gotta go down! It's gotta be that way! See this surfer, his name Bodhi. He was wanted by the FBI because he also had this hobby of robbing banks. But Agent Johnny Utah, he was hot on his trail, tracked him down, to what was supposed to be Australia. Bodie was captured. Johnny Utah got him, but he took the handcuffs off. He let Bodie take his board out into the waves, just as FBI agents were swarming the beach. He's not coming back. In the final scene of the movie Point Break, Bodhi fades into the crashing waves off the coast of Australia. But actually, it happened here, on the Oregon coast, at Ecola State Park. This is where Patrick Swayze, Bodhi, and Keanu Reeves, Johnny Utah, filmed that scene. And the rest of the movie was mostly filmed in California, but for that last iconic scene where Bodhi surfs his last wave and Johnny Utah throws his badge out into the ocean, they came here. And you know, that's not all you see in this general area. Remember Benji the dog? He was hunted in the forest just off the coast here. He actually helped four orphaned cougar kittens while he was at it. Arnold Schwarzenegger? He taught kindergarten just up the road in Astoria. I have a headache. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. Johnny Five came alive here. Spontaneous emotional response. I am alive, yes? Yes! yes. And Willie, Willie was freed here twice. Let's free Willie. He's got family out there, I heard him. Actually, now that I think about it, Willie might have been freed three times here. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Look at that. Legend has it that in 1985, the great pirate, One-Eyed Willie, embarked on his final voyage right off the coast of Ecola State Park. And you could see it if you looked out toward Cannon Beach. Ladies and gentlemen, we're at Calvin Point and what appears to be a pirate ship. And the Goonies save their homes. Bye, Willie. Thanks. 
you can look around all of Oregon. Actually, you can look around the entire Northwest and see where a lot of films were made. Well-known ones, too. But this region, the north coast of Oregon, right around Astoria, sort of stands out just a little bit. It enjoyed this explosion of filmmaking right around the 80s and 90s that produced some of the most cherished titles. While we may not have the most films filmed in the state, we've got a lot of the iconic ones that people do recognize and people are kind of curious about seeing. Not just The Goonies, but Kindergarten Cop, Free Willy, Short Circuit. I mean, there's this whole kind of just amazing abundance of the in the 80s. This is Mac Burns. He's the executive director of the Clatsop County Historical Society and the Oregon Film Museum, which happens to be located in Astoria. In fact, the museum itself is housed in the old county jail where the opening scene of the Goonies was filmed. Now, the museum is not solely focused on films made around Astoria, rather, all of Oregon. Oh, I've seen that one. Oh my gosh, that's one of my favorite movies. I mean, Stand By Me, The Shining, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. I mean, the list just kind of goes on and on and on. Uh, it's truly astounding. And even if uh, uh, if you're a bit older and don't like modern movies, then you got Rooster Cogburn, you got uh, uh, The General. I mean, it's just the list is really staggering. For most people, it probably comes as no surprise that things get filmed around a city like Portland, or really any large city for that matter. But like I said, the area around Astoria is remarkable for the amount of attention that it's gotten from Hollywood. A lot of filmmakers have come here for one reason or another. And the area does have a few benefits. It can really stand in for most places. Small town USA, mountain scenery, sandy beaches... For example, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, in their third film, and not that Michael Bay embarrassment, went back in time to 1593, Japan. That was filmed here, just outside of Astoria. All of that is probably why they opted to place the state's Museum of Film in Astoria, and the museum does have a bit of that hometown advantage. There's an ongoing economic benefit. You know, we are celebrating the Goonies anniversaries uh, in 2005, and we're a town in a story of 10,000 people. For the 25th anniversary, we had 12,000 fans in town. For the 30th anniversary, three years ago, we had 15,000 fans in town. Uh, you know, Animal House is coming up on its 40th anniversary, and there's a huge celebration that's being planned for that. The world's largest toga party. Uh, Brownsville, Stand By Me, they celebrate every year, Stand By Me. There's things to do with tourists or ways to attract them off of these movies after the fact. And uh, certainly here in Astoria, we've we figured that out. You know, visiting the area, one thing becomes clear. This is a town of stories. And the stories begin when scripts are written and cameras roll. And they continue long after the final credits. You can hear them just walking around this town. Or you can just ask Mac. Kinder, this is the hotel where Kindergarten Cop, where he stayed. Uh, and it's still a little motel. Uh, here's Mouth's house from the Goonies. I mean, most folks don't know where that is. Then we'll show the Free Willy house and say, you know, go back to the museum and you'll see the, the baseball that he throws out the window and the harmonica that he plays. And we'll tell you little stories about they, they gave it to the, the kid that was the real kid in the house uh, after filming because they you know, put the family out for about three or four weeks while they were filming and realized there was a kid the same age as the kid in Free Willy. They gave him the harmonica, the little carved whale, and the baseball. And the cool thing about the harmonica, it was disabled, so the actor in the movie could 
blow into it and it would look real, but he wouldn't make any noise. Um, kindergarten cop, how they put uh, all kinds of bushes out front of the school and then they weren't green enough, so they spray painted them green. Uh, the kindergarten cop house where the, the teacher lives, they planted a whole bunch of plants in, in the yard. And then the homeowner of the house, um, they changed hands right after the movie was filmed, and the new owner couldn't understand why these plants weren't growing. And finally uh, dug them up and realized they'd never taken them out of the pots. They had just put the pots into the ground, covered it up. So, you know, there's tons of great little behind-the-scenes stories. That said, The Goonies probably has had the most impact on Astoria. Uh, after the 25th anniversary of celebrating The Goonies, our longtime mayor at the time, uh, Willis Van Dusen, uh, made a proclamation that June 7th would always be Goonies Day. It's the day the movie was released. And right after that, Steven Spielberg's office called the mayor's office and said, could we get a copy of that proclamation? Uh, so we assume that it's hanging somewhere in Spielberg's office. The uh, proclamation making Goonies Day in Astoria a holiday. One of my favorite stories, actually, Mac told me it had to do with this opening scene from the Goonies. Right after the jailbreak, there's this big police chase that goes through town. And Chunk sees it looking through the window of the bowling alley. He gets right up to the window, smashes his milkshake and his pizza on the glass. In between, if you, if you look, if you stand in that same spot, it's still a bowling alley. If you stand in that same spot and look out the window, you certainly see the road where the police chase is happening. But you also see a McDonald's today. And when the location scouted for the film, that McDonald's had not been built yet. So the day of the filming, uh, they're setting up, and suddenly Richard Donner, the director, realizes that McDonald's is going to be very prominent in this scene, and they had not worked out an agreement for that. And he started cursing and uh, said he was going to scrap the whole scene, and we'll film the kids somewhere else. And suddenly somebody said, well, why don't we just you know, they sell pizza here? Why don't we just have them slam a piece of pizza on the wall, and it'll block the McDonald's sign? And that is the entire reason that he does a milkshake and the pizza. There is a sense of local pride with these movies, but there has been a downside. And as fans, you should probably bear this in mind. The Goonies house, for example, it was purchased by a Goonies fan a while back. And for a few years, they entertained fans wanting photos. But while it is a piece of iconic pop culture, it's also someone's home. Max says the constant flow of traffic started to add up. There were some tense confrontations. Fans, perhaps too passionate, kept sneaking onto the property, peeking through the windows. And there's already signs deterring parking on this one dead-end street. The museum has stopped referring people to that area of the neighborhood. Just this last October, the Astoria City Council actually proposed upping parking fines to $100 just for this one area around the Goonies' house. But... Despite any drawbacks, the town still does seem to enjoy the limelight. Astoria loves being on film. We will go out of our way. Astorians don't mind uh, diverting traffic. They don't mind closing roads. We'll show up to be extras. Uh, heck, we'll show up to help cater or, or you need something painted and people will show up and help. The film scene in Astoria actually goes back a lot further than that. Back in 1909, William Nicholas Selig, also known as Colonel Selig, he was starting up this company called the Selig Polyscope Company. 
He was traveling up and down the West Coast, filming scenes here and there, but it was in Astoria where something unique happened. Someone decided to put a script to this film thing that people were doing. And that's when the first scripted film was born in Astoria. 1909, The Fisherman's Bride. It was a Selig Polyscope company. And we have to say the first scripted film or the first film with a script uh, because we know that same trip that he sent a crew through Oregon. They also filmed uh, some apple picking in the Willamette Valley and uh, some scenes in the Dalles. But uh, The Fisherman's Bride, it was a 14-minute film, as all films were in this time period. It was about a young couple and uh, she decided to marry the fisherman instead of the the rich young lad that uh, was heir to one of the canneries and the cannery guy and his son got angry and had the the new new husband shanghaied and uh, lo and behold he gets rescued and it's a happy ending colonel selig went on to do a few other things in the film industry after his trip to astoria colonel selig is actually the guy that's credited uh, in many circles with creating hollywood uh, before him, there there was no Hollywood. You filmed on the East Coast, and there's some folks in Chicago, and uh, it was his idea to locate a uh, a whole kind of a modern motion picture lot, filming lot in uh, in California, and what becomes Hollywood. So it started in 1909, but it hasn't really stopped. You fast forward past the 80s and 90s, where I seem to have rooted all my pop culture references for this story. There's been a lot of other activity here. Yeah, it still happens. Uh, the Ring 2 was filmed here in the last 15 years. Cthulhu, a horror movie, was filmed here. A uh, really great independent film, Wendy and Lucy, was uh, partially filmed here. The final scene of uh, the TV show Dexter. He's working on a waterfront in a logging town. He's grown a beard, and lo and behold, that apparently is a story Oregon that he's moved to. Uh, and there's a great old house that they found for him to quietly walk into for the final scene. Mac and all the others in town have been looking forward to this one particular indie film that came and filmed over the past year. It's called The Mortuary Collection. It was shot in this historic building in town. It hasn't gotten too much screen time before. It's called The Flavel House. And it's hoped that it's going to make a mark because it's set up to be an anthology film, one of those collection of stories in one film. But it's certainly a, a love letter, if you will, to Twilight Zone or um, Creepshow. To, uh, basically, the Flavel House gets transformed into the, the mortuary for this movie. And uh, the, the mortician, Clancy Brown, is looking for an assistant. Young lady comes in for the job and basically he starts telling stories of why people died. But uh, from what we saw filming, it's, it's going to be pretty good. You can keep an eye out for the Mortuary Collection. It's expected to be released in 2019. And when it does hit screens, it's going to be added to this canon of films and a legacy. One that Astoria takes pride in. One that this town loves to share. We get cruise ships, about uh, 25 ocean-going cruise ships every year that, that come here. And when that first started happening... People were saying, you know, I didn't know why our ship was stopping at Astoria, and yet it turned into the highlight of the trip because <laughs> uh, it was unexpected. And I think that's kind of what we are. We're, we're unexpected. We're a place that people just expected to be driving through, and then all of a sudden, bam, here's all this stuff. And it's kind of the same for the film. You know, even for Goonies fans, they, they come here knowing that Astoria was where the Goonies was filmed, but they don't realize the bowling alley's still there. And 
those houses are still here or that business that was filmed is still there uh, or that vista that scene you know you can stand in the same spot and realize hey this is where patrick swayze uh disappears he's not going to get arrested at the end If any of you dear listeners out there have any stories from uh, your travels to Astoria, that little corner of a Northwest Hollywood over there, we'd love to hear them. Drop us a line on our uh, Facebook page or our Twitter at NW underscore nerd or uh, send us an email at NW-nerd.com where you can always get in touch with the show. And now from one town by the ocean to another literally named Seaside, in our summer travels, Dyer got to sit down with the legendary cartoonist keith tucker and here is that interview if you aren't the type of person who likes to read the credits at the end of your favorite cartoons or movies then you might not know the name of the storyboard artist or the effects crew that's probably not the case with keith tucker though chances are he has worked on in one way or another At least one of your most cherished animations. Dare I say, more than one. I was actually surprised to hear of quite a few of them when I caught up with Keith in Oregon last summer at the Versus Comic Con. We talked about doing effects for John Carpenter's The Thing or Star Trek II. That's right, The Wrath of Khan. He helped kill Spock. He also had a very successful career in storyboarding where he worked on X-Men, Roger Rabbit, Gem and the Holograms, Ghostbuster. You know what? I'm just going to have him explain. Uh, the Pinky and the Brain. <laughs> uh, Rescue Rangers, DuckTales, uh, Tailspin, uh, X-Men, Spider-Man, uh, Animaniacs, some Tiny Toon work, E-Man, Shira, Transformers, G.I. Joe, Dino Riders, you know, Casper. uh, I just want to keep you going and see how long you could go to like Lissy's off because it is extensive. On your website, I believe it said uh, you animated or you drew our childhood. Because, I I mean, that's. I hear that a lot. I I was fortunate. I got into the the biz at uh, the right time, I guess. You know, starting with. Live action, uh, the first Conan movie, I was a key animator on the Demon sequence, and a couple others, I helped uh, do some small animation flashes and such. We were all doing it in 2D. You know, computers cost a lot of money back then. And uh, the second Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, I worked on the um, uh, base animation for all the transporter scenes. Uh, a few laser blasts on the Reliant, I enhanced an explosion there. Um, I helped kill Spock. I pitched in. Uh, Do you get a lot of crap from Trekkies then that you helped kill Spock? I usually get a big laugh when I say that. Um, and then the last two warp effects uh, after the Genesis bomb exploded, I animated by hand and there were these little itty bitty increments on a grid and i had to make cells for each one of them and we sandwiched the cells between plexiglass with bottom light and when i was doing it i said wouldn't a computer do this easier easier and they said 
Yeah, but you're cheaper than a computer. <laughs> that was me, all cheap like. Um, and then uh, John Carpenter's The Thing they animated the Rocket Trail on the and the main title and helped with the practical effects on the the lettering when it appeared. Some friends of mine um, were at Filmation, and they said, you know, you should come on over here. It's a union gig, and I wanted to learn storyboarding rather than animation. Um, and so I apprenticed on at Filmation on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, and uh, then moved on to Shira, at which point I jumped ship because and went to Marvel because I wanted to work on Transformers Generation 1. And I stayed there for about five years until Marvel imploded, working on a bunch of shows like uh, Defenders of the Earth, The Inhumanoids, Dino Riders, uh, The Puppies, Great Adventures. So you just mentioned a couple key points there. I mean, you did a lot of film animation, but you made this jump into the storyboarding aspects. What was the attraction to, to make that leap? I really wanted... I, I'm a storyteller, and I like telling stories, and and animating, you're just dealing with small aspects of a scene that has already been boarded and planned and you know, you're executing it and that was a whole lot of fun it was a great way to get my feet wet but my drive was to uh, be a storyteller in comics and animation and uh, it worked was there any cartoon any animation that just seems to stick out in your mind saying that that's the one i like to show people i did that da 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 the one is a genius the other one's insane <laughs> which brings me to the point of uh the one line that has stuck in my brain ever since i was a child Narf? no it was uh no it was uh do you know do you well we can just go down the list if you want <laughs> it was uh do you know what i'm thinking pinky he says yeah brain but where are we going to get rubber pants at this time of night Ever since I was a kid, I don't know why, but that's the one joke that's always stuck with me, and it, I think it makes like the perfect case for why that show was perfect. But I mean, where did these lines? You were there at the ground floor. Where did people come up with this just wonderful banter between Pinky and the Brain? That's the writers. We had excellent writers, and uh, Tom Ruger uh, was uh, the co-creator producer, working with this guy you may have heard of called Steven Spielberg. Uh, you know, they really hashed things out before it ever got to the board's stage. You you said earlier in a panel that you're retired, but you're obviously not inactive. You are at a lot of cons that I see. People love talking to you. But what do you find yourself up to these days? Because I, I feel like you're not the kind of person who's just going to settle down and put down their pen. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm drawing what I want to draw. Creating pieces of work with characters that I'm associated with and having fun with them like I did before, only different. It's the same, only different. Thank you so much to Keith Tucker, who is a blast to talk with. He currently resides in the Northwest, so it's not uncommon to find him at one of the region's comic shows. So chat him up. 
I promise you will be happy you did. That's all we have for this week. If you like what you hear, make sure you go give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Facebook. Follow and subscribe while you're there. The Music in Dyer's Astoria piece is by Kevin McLeod. Our theme music for Northwest Nerd is by the Hoot Hoots. Shout out to them. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and all you listeners out there. We will post the isolated feature on Monday to make it a little easier for you to share with your friends from Astoria or wherever they're from. So until next time, vaya con Dios, you nerds! They put out the latest photo of Captain Marvel and they went like inch by inch to find out anything in the screen and they focused in on this phone number inside a phone booth and someone was like, oh, it's a clue and they looked it up and it used to be a phone number for the Sweet Life with Zach or something like, remember like the Disney show, The Sweet oh, yeah. Life? Sweet Life with Zach, Zach and, and Morty. Cody? Marty? Zach and Cody? Sure. Sure. Uh, anyway. It was a phone number for that, and you used to call it, and it would say, you've reached ABC or something like that. Now when you call it, it's a sex line.